And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If one of the founding fathers could uh, somehow be uh, transported back in uh, time or forward in time, I guess, and, and could suddenly find themselves not in the mid-1700s, but here now in, in 2012, and could pick up a newspaper and read what's going on in the body politic in America today, uh, spend some time listening to a debate on the floor of the House, uh, or um, or read some of the executive powers uh, and orders that have been uh, exercised by the president, do, do you think do you think that... Uh, the founding fathers would recognize this country and say, oh, yeah, that's the America that I helped create. Well, as our guest today, Dr. Thomas Kidd is suggesting, no, the answer is no, no, probably not at all. He's authored a new book called Patrick Henry, First Among Patriots. And again, the new book published by Basic Books and available bookstores throughout the Bay Area. One or two that still exist, but most notably, of course, through Amazon.com. Yeah, I find it interesting that we look at some of these men who, uh, for whom these beliefs was not just something that they were willing to enunciate uh, and go public on. These were beliefs that they held so closely, so dearly that they were willing to die for them. And yet it seems as if we have very easily, uh, through fiat and uh, bad legislation, have, have almost whittled away the bulk of a lot of the, the real facts. Foundation, I'm going to say, uh, Dr. Kidd, of what America was. Well, that's right. And I think that someone like Henry, uh, the reason why I call him the first among patriots is because he was so uh, aware of the threats to liberty. Uh, and so he is always seems to be first in line uh, to decry uh, British encroachments against American liberty. And so he's already doing this even before the revolutionary crisis begins. There's a trial in 1763. Uh, where he, the, the British have overturned a perfectly reasonable Virginia law. And he says, well, if the king will do this, he, he's degenerating into a tyrant. <laughs> people, as is common with, with Henry's uh, major speeches, people start muttering, uh, treason, sir, treason. <laughs> you know, and, but he's willing to, to risk being uh, arrested. Uh, right at the beginning of the revolution in, in Virginia, he becomes the commander-in-chief of Virginia's armed forces in George Washington's absence. Uh, these are people who are very much willing to lay their lives on the line uh, in the name of American liberty. And I think that we, all of us, I think, have become uh, too complacent about this today. When you look at things like the the Patriot Act, uh, where we've essentially now said that, oh, you're no longer compelled to get a, a, a federal judge to issue a, a warrant in order to engage in eavesdropping. And then, most recently, this passage here in signature by the president over the New Year's holiday that allows, effectively, the declaration of uh, the United States and its territories to be declared a battlefield. And as such, the president can then dispatch the United States military uh, to go out and arrest residents aliens or U.S. citizens uh, with the charge that they've engaged in some act of terrorism or the intent to uh, engage in terrorism and effectively lock them up without the ability of trial, jury, a judge, uh, an attorney, even a telephone call home to mother. I mean, I, I got to tell you, I, I find this to be so out of line. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that which, I mean, wouldn't somebody like Patrick Henry take a glove off and, and slap somebody in the face over something like this? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure he would, and this is why they were calling for, among other things, very clear rights to, uh, to trial, uh, jury trial, and, and so forth. And, and, and even with that, Henry thought that if you give a national government uh, the kind of power that is given under the Constitution, that all it takes is getting a president, uh, getting people in Congress, getting judges 
who are willing to act out of the accord of the, of the original intent of the Constitution, and they can corrupt it, uh, and their study of the, the past, the classical antiquity, always told them that this kind of militarization of the state, becoming a, a more police-oriented state, especially from the top down, uh, was the way that liberty began to go away. Yeah, what's curious about this is the fact that we're, we're dealing with men who, who knew what it was like to live under the impression of a monarchy. So they had some point of comparison. Uh, this is something that perhaps that we don't hear in America. I mean, we, we've enjoyed uh, you know several hundred years now of freedom and liberties, unprecedented uh, across the planet in many respects. And yet, because of the fact that we have no point of comparison and have failed, as you suggest, Dr. Kidd, to really engage in that study of the past is what perhaps puts us at greatest risk, wouldn't it? I think so. And I, and I think when I teach my uh, students about the anti-federalists, and about Henry in particular, I think it, it's. I find it's hard for them to even take what he says seriously because we have been taught that the Constitution almost, uh, you know, runs by itself without any kind of monitoring by the people and, and so forth. And so when and so when Henry says uh, that he thinks the office of president is dangerous, he says uh, he says people say that this Constitution is. This is what he says at the ratifying convention. People say that this Constitution is so lovely, but to me it seems. Ugly. It has a strange squinting. He says it squints towards monarchy. <laughs> so, you know, he says your 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 president. Call him a president, but he may easily become king. And Americans, I think, today say, "Oh, that could never happen." But what is this? You know, these uh, exercises of of uh, kind of aggressive executive power over American citizens. I mean, what is that like uh, besides monarchy? Uh, and and so that you know, we can call it a president or monarch, but. Uh, Someone who's given that kind of power can easily abuse it. Well, exactly so. And I mean, for example, there was some debate here. Unfortunately, it didn't get quite as spirited as I wished it had um, in the revelation. I think the most Americans were completely ignorant of that as much as the United States Congress has passed laws and regulations with regard to such things as insider trading, uh, they took caution and care to exempt themselves from such legislation. And so the act that, for example, uh, the chef um, helping here. Um, Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart, uh, her, her action in selling shares of a company that she had interest in uh, on the cusp of some changes that would have affected the price, effectively to preserve her financial interest in the company, uh, that action that cost her $90,000 penalty, uh, plus time in jail and three years under probation, uh, the very same action conducted by a member of the United States Congress brings no reprisals, no penalties, nothing at all, because they've taken the time and care to exempt themselves from insider trading laws. Now, if that doesn't take on um, uh, monarch-style overtures and tones, uh, Dr. Kidd, I, I don't know what does. That, that the monarchy effectively passed all the rules and laws, but didn't have to live under the laws that they passed. You know, the, 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 uh, the old adage, don't do as I do, do as I say. Right, and, and you know, I think with Henry, his Christian beliefs gave him a, a, such a moral clarity about the risks of this kind of power. And again, at the Virginia Ratifying Convention, he said, this Constitution will work fine, uh, except for the fact that we can't trust politicians' moral character. Mm. Uh, and he, he said, the depraved nature of man is well known. And so all it will take for this Constitution to allow uh, a, a turning away from the original intent is 
putting people in office who are willing uh, to abuse the power that the Constitution gives them. And to Patrick Henry, it was inexorable that that would happen under the American Constitution. Well, uh, you know, we, we've uh, we've considered him to be one of the key founding fathers. He perhaps is uh, also one of the uh, the key um, predictors uh, that exactly what he warned us about has come to pass. We'll come back to more of our conversation. Turn a corner after an update on traffic. I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Kidd to give us some insights on the, the spiritual beliefs of uh, Patrick Henry and, and most importantly, the, how the, the shaping of his political views uh, took place under the guidance of his spiritual and religious views. A look at Patrick Henry, first among patriots, the author of this new book, Dr. Thomas Kidd, our guest on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the most acclaimed founding fathers, Patrick Henry, the focus of our conversation this afternoon, first among patriots, and our guest is author Dr. Thomas Kidd. As we mentioned earlier on, um, a look at the amazing life of this man, who, oddly enough, in the very beginning, uh, was against the language of the United States Constitution, uh, considered a leader in the anti-federalist movement, uh, concerned that in some respects it would be granting the federal government too much power. Boy, did he have a crystal ball to look at back then, or what? Now, the interesting thing, you, you made reference to his concern and acknowledgement over the depravity of man, that all of this would work out fine, provided that everybody that uh, heretofore from the founding of our nation would be good and moral and honorable and would think only, of course, uh, uh, about uh, what is best for the nation and not uh, not approach any of this from a uh, purely self-serving uh, perspective. Of course, we know that uh, that has not happened, uh, that the depravity of man has uh, has influenced uh, the governance of this nation for uh, you know better part of uh, over 200 plus years now, and with all of that, um, concerns about where the nation is is headed. Uh, talk to us a bit, if you would, uh, Doctor Kidd, about the influence of Patrick Henry's spiritual life on his political life. Well, among the major founding fathers, he's the most uh, outspoken Christian. It's not that there are other founders, of course, who are who are traditional Christians too. But he's, I think, uh, increasingly outspoken about his faith over the course of his life, and uh, he is deeply influenced as a boy, as a teenager, by the Great Awakening in Virginia, which is a series of revivals in the 1740s and 50s. And his mother got involved with a uh, a new revivalist congregation in Virginia. Uh, and she would take Patrick Henry when he was a boy to these meetings. And uh, I, I think that these uh, meetings about uh, the gospel and salvation through Christ really stuck uh, deeply with Henry and certainly uh, formed his own faith. Uh, but I think they also helped him to uh, develop as a speaker. The pastor uh, at these revival meetings was a man named Samuel Davies. And later on, Henry said that Davies was the greatest orator that he ever heard. And coming from Someone like Henry, who by all, all accounts was the greatest uh, orator of the, the American Revolution, that's quite a compliment. Indeed so. Um, the role of faith in the founding of our nation, uh, you know, the, the phrase separation of church and state has been uttered so many times that I, I would suppose uh, a man like Patrick Henry would, would choke on those words. <laughs> well, he went head-to-head with Thomas Jefferson and James Madison in the 1780s in Virginia, uh, because Patrick Henry believed that Virginia and the other states, not the national government, but the states, should continue direct tax support for the churches. Uh, and this is uh, an opinion that was shared by about half of the major founders. Uh, George Washington and John Adams believed in direct tax support for churches by the states. 
Uh, but Virginia decided to go with full uh, disestablishment of the, of the churches, no direct tax support at all. But this was never a debate about pro-religion versus anti-religion. It was always a debate about on what basis that religion would thrive best. And I think that, that it's interesting to note that uh, Jefferson and Madison are supported in their effort to get the government completely out of the business of promoting a denomination. They're supported in that by uh, many evangelical Christians, including especially evangelical Baptists. The reason is is because the Baptists had fresh memories of being persecuted by the state church, and they thought that the government just messes up religion when it gets involved with it. So the concern here was the government's influence on religion, not as we've seen it today, where there seems to be such a great degree of paranoia that at some level or another, the, the, the religion or religious beliefs might somehow influence the government. Absolutely. And the, and the, the major founders would be perplexed at the way that secularists in particular interpret the idea of separation of church and state to mean the erasure of, of religion from American public life. One of the best examples of this is even Jefferson, who's the one who wrote this uh, phrase, wall of separation between church and state. He wrote that in 1802 to a group, group of evangelical Baptists in Connecticut. And the same weekend he sent that letter, he hosted a church service in the House of Representatives chambers with a Baptist preacher giving the sermon. <laughs> so that that phrase by Jefferson, that I understand at the time uh, he was not engaged in public office. Uh, this is a, a private letter that he wrote. Uh, that again, it, it, to properly put that in, into context, was not a warning about keeping the church's uh, church out of any government business, but instead the other way around. Well, the Baptists in Connecticut were bothered because Connecticut in 1802 still had an established state church, the Congregationalist Church, and they wanted Connecticut to stop supporting this one particular denomination, and Jefferson was sympathizing with them about that, and he said, well, look, we're glad that at least on the national level, uh, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, meaning that we'll never have an official national denomination. But it, two days later, Jefferson is hosting a church service in the House of Representatives' chambers. So the separation of church and state means to Jefferson, the great separationist, it can include having church services in government buildings. Pulling all of this back full circle, uh, Dr. Kidd, you began your early remarks uh, about the value of some of the, the influences of our founding fathers, such as F Patrick Henry, uh, by their study of the past. And they, they wanted to put in certain protections that would prevent a so-called repeat performance. Well, obviously, we have erred tremendously uh, in this uh, you know, more recent generations of governance of our nation uh, in our failure to really properly study the past. That said, what do you think that we can learn of Patrick Henry, his life, his values, the positions that he, that he held dear, that can be an important lesson to help us correct some of the incorrect path that our nation has been down recently? Well, I think that, that Patrick Henry, if he was alive today, he would, he would, if he was in a bad mood, he would probably say, I told you so. <laughs> uh, but he would probably also say, what, what I was arguing for in 1788 when I spoke out against the Constitution was not just assurances of the protection of liberty and economic uh, good order, uh, but actual structural limitations on power. And I think that when you look at an idea, of, for instance, like a balanced budget amendment, which is not a perfect solution, but it is a structural limitation on Congress's power to keep spending. I think that Henry would probably say, yes, that's the sort of thing that I have in mind, is actually preventing uh, the government structurally from being able to do these sorts of things. And I think he would also remind us that, after all, we do have the power to vote people out when they do not do what the Constitution says uh, that they should do. So I think he would recommend that we take control of our power 
and the sovereignty of the people under the United States Constitution. Boy, if listeners in the Bay Area are tuned in, can I add some names to that list? Diane Feinstein, Barbara Boxer, Pete Stark. I won't waste your time. <laughs> Dr. Kidd, I appreciate so much your time today. Thank you very much. A look at Patrick Henry, First Among Patriots. Again, the new book, newly published by Basic and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And its author has been our guest today, Dr. Thomas Kidd. Again, Associate Professor of History at Baylor University and considered one of our nation's leading historians of the American Revolution. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Think about it. Today, modern technology, we've got far greater tools, resources, methods, and mechanisms available to we as the church today than ever before in history. Imagine the challenge it must have been for the disciples, for the early church, to spread the gospel to Judea, then Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Absence, highways, transportation, internet, telephones, television, radio stations like this, all of that. None of it existed at the beginning of the church, and yet we saw a phenomenal explosion of the gospel of Jesus Christ all across the then modern world. And yet today, with far greater tools and resources, ever before in any time in history, we are, at least in the West, a church that is frail, fractured, faltering, and some might even argue failing. Why is that? What about the major difference between some churches that today look more like the Book of Acts than the church organization in the West? And is it a question of organization, or is it really an organism that lives and breathes the heartbeat of God's commandment for we to go and make disciples? We wrestle with that question today as we're joined in studio by a familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He is the founder and president of Harvest Evangelism and the International Transformation Network. He is the author of a number of best-selling books, including Anointed for Business, also, that none should perish, prayer evangelism, and women, God's secret weapon, and transformation. He's got a very special conference coming up here in the Bay Area that will be hosted at Cathedral of Faith in San Jose, October the 13th through the 16th. We'll get more details on that later on in the program. And meanwhile, Dr. Ed Silvoso, wonderful to see you again. Oh, wonderful to see you, Greg, and wonderful to be on KFAX. <laughs> Let's talk about this fundamental question, and, and, and you're, I think, uniquely qualified, Ed, to give us some insights on this because you do work in both North America, South America, you've traveled the globe, you've had a chance to see the church at its best, the church at its worst. And the one thing that has always puzzled me, we look today at all these tools we have available to us, and you would think, my goodness, the church of Jesus Christ should be exploding mm-hmm. across the planet. And yet, and this is not meant to be a blanket accusation against all. No. But to a great degree, we seem to just be limping along. Why so? Well, first of all, let me say, like you, I'm committed to the church. Okay? I am not looking down on the church. But like you, I realize, I read the Bible, I look around, and except for a few exceptions, we are not doing that well. So in my next book called Ecclesia, I raise a very interesting question. Why did Jesus speak about the church only twice? And why there is no command in the Bible to plant churches, Mm. much less any teaching on how to do one. I mean, those are really provoking questions. And what I present in that book is that in Jesus' days, and this is the answer or the beginning of the answer to your question, there were three institutions, the temple, the synagogue, and the church. 
The church already existed. Jesus did not invent the church. It was called Ecclesia. The Greeks invented the Ecclesia. It was the assembly of citizens that protected the city. When the Romans took over, they kept the Ecclesia, and when they conquered a territory, they took people captive, made them Romans, and deputized them to rule on behalf of Rome. So not an institution? Certainly not a building, mm-hmm. but really an organism, if right. you will. People. And that's why Jesus didn't say, I will build my temple that was religious. That's right, he didn't say that. I will he? not build my synagogue, mm-hmm. which was also religious. He said, I will build my ecclesia. Now, Greg, the disciples must have been shocked by that because the ecclesia was the agency for the occupying power. So what was Jesus after? He said, I will inject the Leaven of the kingdom on an existing institution, and I will turn it into the kingdom of God. And today, I have the privilege to lead the network of about 3,000 influencers who lead about 3 million plus people. And they have taken the kingdom to factories, to schools, to government buildings. And guess what, Greg? Not all the people have come to the Lord. Those institutions have come into the kingdom. The the term occupy until I return yes. comes to mind. Not not in terms so much of eschatology, no. but in terms of occupying. Yes. Uh, taking hold, yes. being present, yes. um, injecting yes. into yes. society. Yes. The church, though, at least in recent times and, yeah. and, and, and to the large extent in the Western Hemisphere, has not worked, though, so much on that whole matter of occupancy, per yeah. se. Um, and it's interesting to note, if you look at the phenomenal growth we see in places like communist China, mm-hmm. in places like Argentina, mm-hmm. where you're from, throughout many portions of mm-hmm. of Central and South America, we find a church that's not necessarily connotated by buildings and conventions mm-hmm. and Presbyterian mm-hmm. bylaws. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do no membership mm-hmm. drives. Yeah. It's a matter of occupying yes. and making disciples. And that's a big distinction from the institutional church, isn't it? Absolutely. So to complete the thought, so Jesus says, I will build my ecclesia. And what did the church run on in the book of Acts? There are no buildings, there is no professional clergy, although there were apostles and elders and all that, on meals. Every meal became an expression of the ecclesia. So that's why Paul was able to say, beginning in Jerusalem and all the way to Illyricum, which is on the border with Italy, I have filled the place and I don't have a single place. Why? Because the early church, Greg, occupied the land. Now, how did we end up with these institutions? Enter King James. He didn't like the Bible translated by Tyndale Mm -hmm. because he translated Ecclesia as assembly. And King James is the creator of the right of kings. We are divinely ordained. He didn't like a local assembly telling him what to do. So he convened 47 scholars, told them, I want a Bible that I can approve. But he gave them 15 restrictions. And restriction number three, are you ready, was you cannot translate ecclesia as assembly, translate it as a church. So then we preserve this hierarchical institution. Episcopal form mm-hmm. of government, which in no way I put down. I'm just explaining. That's why you made reference to third world countries, right? Where the church is growing. Communist China. 
Why? Because there is no centralized institution. Every assembly gathers in the name of the Lord, and they spread out, you know, by word of mouth. This should be very troubling for the, the westernized church, shouldn't it? Very, and, and I say that because, well, challenging and troubling. And the reason why we use the word troubling, Ed, is because we spend so much time in church growth seminars, mm-hmm. church planting seminars. We want to have mega churches. It seems to be all about the design of, of institution and programs <coughs> and organizations. And yet here you have, just in the example of communist China, mm. communism takes over, they shut down all the seminaries, they border up all the churches, they arrest the pastors, they kick out the missionaries. The church goes from conservative estimates, maybe there was 100,000 evangelical believers at the time, mm. who knows? Today we know that even from the official estimates by the government, the evangelical church, those who name Jesus Christ as mm. Lord and Savior, numbers in the hundreds of millions. Yes. Absent all of the trappings that we in the West say must be necessary to build a church. Well, and you said must be troubling. I was watching a television program. This was 20 years ago. When somebody was commenting on China, these are iconic evangelical leaders, right? And they are reporting on that explosion of growth, right? I mean, without seminars, without anything. And then they said, and now we want to make an appeal to our audience to build a seminary in China. A seminary for what? <laughs> so that they will be like us? I mean, shouldn't we say, let's bring some of those Chinese guys here and teach <laughs> us? Yes. Now, but it's not either or. What we have, we have. And that's why this conference that we are having, we honor what we have, but we hope for more. We're going to pause on that note. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more about not just the upcoming conference, but also this concept. And, Ed, you talk about it a lot. You've written books on marketplace evangelism. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about exactly what that marketplace comprises of. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about evangelism, so is it an event or is it a lifestyle? Mm -hmm. We'll come back to Morley Conversation. Best-selling author Ed Silvoso details about the conference right around the corner as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. This uh, upcoming Transform Our World Global Conference is hosted at Cathedral of Faith right here in the Bay Area in San Jose. And you can get details on the web at transformourworld.org. That's transformourworld.org. And, and Ed, there's so much to dissect here. We'd need four hours, and we're obviously going to have to have you come back. I want you to spend a moment, though, before we talk about the conference. And talk about this concept of marketplace evangelism. Mm-hmm. We think of marketplace, and traditionally, I think m- many people, their minds go to Wall Street or Main Street. Mm-hmm. Um, but the marketplace really is, is broadly defined as where people eat, where yeah. they gather, yeah. socialize, work, entertain, or just simply coexist. Absolutely. I wrote a book called Anointed for Business. In that book, I show that God always works in the marketplace. You look at every revival in the Bible. Not a single revival happened in a religious setting. There are 39 miracles in the book of Acts. 38 happened in the marketplace. Jesus, we think of him like a monk, but he was a managing editor, managing partner in a family-owned business. His apostles have fishing companies, work for the government, medical doctors. That in no way puts down the traditional pastor. I want to go on record saying that. But, but these are ministers, right? Okay. So the first thing to understand marketplace evangelism, we need to understand that in the Bible, there is no separation between sacred and secular. Everything secular that is dedicated to God becomes sacred. sacred. Right? Okay. So Paul tells slaves who did the most 
despicable jobs for masters that were abusive. Whatever job you do, do it heartily unto the glory of God. So then we need to understand, Craig, and you do and I do, but this is for the sake of the audience, that everybody is a minister. And the, in the Bible, and I explain this in my book, Transformation, the premier expression of worship is not music. That is the most exquisite. Music is never identified for worship until 2,000 years after the creation of Adam and Eve. So how did they worship God? How did Adam and Eve worship God? By working unto the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Now picture how this changes California now. People go to work on Monday morning and they have the worship switch in the off position <laughs> because they are waiting for music, right? Mm-hmm. They get a break, 20 minutes, iPod, okay, boom, boom, back to the rat race. But when they understand, I am a minister and labor is worship. And you have a taxi driver driving a taxi unto the glory of God. You have a waiter bringing food quietly unto the glory of God. You have a judge passing judgment unto the glory of God. And now look at California from a Google map. Worship all over the place happening there. Does this require a fundamental shift in the way we see and view church? And I ask that question Mm -hmm. because for most of us, Church is a place that we go. It's what we do Mm -hmm. on Sundays. And what you're suggesting is, no, 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 no. Church is not an action or a physical location. It is a state of being. It is who we are. I am so excited to have you ask that question because that's the heart of my book, Ecclesia. Church in the Bible is always people. We are the church. Paul doesn't say you go to church. You are the church. You are the ecclesia. So we are the body of Christ. So church is not something we do. Church is something we are. So now picture, people realize, okay, I am a minister, and my job is my ministry. So what do you do? You take the keys of the kingdom. Look what Jesus says. I will build my church, my ecclesia. He was very protective. I will build it. And it's my church. What's the implication? Get off the property. But on the way out, pick up the keys of the kingdom. And in the context, it talks about the gates of what? Hell. Hades or hell. Mm -hmm. Do you realize, do people realize that the keys of the kingdom used to be the keys of Hades and death? That Jesus took away from Mm -hmm. the devil, Mm -hmm. renamed them, and Mm -hmm. all the devil has are gates that he can never open, neither open nor close. So now we take the presence of God, we take the kingdom of God, that is righteousness, making right what was wrong, so people will have peace and joy. We take it there, and those gates collapse. So we've completely flipped this equation. We oftentimes will say, and we've heard preacher get up and talk about it on Sunday morning. Now, next week, would you please invite a guest to come to church? Mm -hmm. Bring them to church. What you're saying is, let's bring church yes. to the marketplace. And keep what we have on Sundays. Absolutely. But that is the locker room. That's what the, the coach, the manager, okay, team, mm-hmm. when we hit there, mm-hmm. is playing number 17-B. But right now, the church looks like a final match on the wall soccer cup. We're in the start of football that season. Rest and mm-hmm. 120,000 people that need exercise. And so what we do in our conference, what we do in our teaching, in our website, we help the pastors recover the tools to enjoy doing church. The action of what we do on Sunday then becomes the respite. Yeah. 
it becomes a moment of recovery. Yeah. It becomes the coach yeah. giving insight, yeah. instruction, yeah. playbook, yeah. in yeah. this case, God's word, yeah. and then says, okay, now that I have ordained you, yeah. I have equipped you, yeah. I am now sending you yeah. back out into the field. Yeah. That field is the marketplace, Absolutely. and let's go win one for Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And look at this. Today, there's a lot of talk about the fivefold ministry, mm-hmm. right? Yes. I, I don't need to be critical about it, but I'm a phenomenological theologian. I look at phenomena, and I interpret it. In that passage in Ephesians 4, apostles, prophets, teachers, the word ministry is not associated with them. Is with the saints. They are given to equip the saints for the saints to do the work of the ministry. So we need to let the word of God illuminate us because why there are thousands of pastors going to burn out? Mm-hmm. Why so many churches shut down every year? Because we are trained to conquer and we are living in survival well, mode. And the other thought, too, is I think about somebody like uh, Bill Walsh. Yeah. Could he, with the 49ers, ever yeah. won a single yeah. Super Bowl had he been the only guy yeah. on yeah. the field? Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. And I think the reason why so many pastors are burned out, yeah. washed out, and get out of yeah. the ministry yeah. is they're out there trying to do on the field what yeah. the church, what the yeah. body should be doing. Yeah. And I think there's another factor, and I explained this in my book, Anointed for Business. Marketplace people get safe. And we pastors look down on them like if they are idiots, okay? Until you are like me, you cannot do anything intelligent. These are people, some of them lead corporations, whatever. So all they can aspire to is to become elders. And because that resemblance is there, when they become elders, they really clip us from behind. But when the pastor understands that you and your household shall be safe, in the Bible, household is not only family. It's workplace because people work out. So now you invite the Lord into your heart and into your corporation. That marketplace person becomes a puppy that will ask the pastor, okay, pastor, how do I take the presence of God to my corporation? Rather than, otherwise they become bulls that carry their own china shop. I'm talking about broadening the sphere of influence. Yes. If in the San Francisco Bay Area is an example, any given pastor on average has a congregation of about 200, 250 people, mm-hmm. a few more, a lot that have a lot less, but that's the average. You can be the leader of a corporation, a small corporation, and have 500 people that have extended family within that number. Mm-hmm. The sphere of your influence five days a week could be in the tens of thousands Now, if the pastor begins to see that this is an extension of what we do in discipleship into the marketplace, suddenly now the sphere of influence is not 200 people Sunday morning. It's tens of thousands of people throughout the seven days of the week. Well, you were asking about uh, marketplace evangelism. In my book, I call it prayer evangelism. Luke chapter 10, Jesus found 70 people and told them, don't curse, bless the people. Mm -hmm fellowship with them, minister to them, and then and only then open your mouth and preach. So look, bless, fellowship, minister, proclaim. If a pastor, and I want pastors to be encouraged, I'm a pastor too, okay? If we tell our people you should witness, people will say yes, because how can they say no? But they will not do it because they they don't feel equipped. But if you tell your congregation, we are going to adopt each one of us 100 people, Five houses to the right, five to the left. Every day you bless them in your heart. As the door opens, eat and drink with them. Don't be religious. Be normal. So you bless, you fellowship. When they confide, 
that they have a problem, tell them, I'll include you in my prayers. That's easy. And when they get an answer to prayer, you say, the kingdom of God has come near you. So now you have a pastor with a hundred members in the pew, and his congregation, like you were saying, grew to 10,000 mm-hmm. people. But the beauty, Craig, people get saved. We are going to highlight two cases at our conference, a church of 43 members that hit 20,000 last month and is growing, and a church in Mexico that had 15 members in Ciudad Juarez and today has over 10,000 See, this is the paradigm shift from how to do evangelism mm-hmm. that has a starting place, mm-hmm. a middle, and an ending place to how to live evangelism. A lifestyle of evangelism. And, and, and therein lies the real key. And, and what we're really talking about here, and, and let me underscore this, at least some folks have tuned in and say, wow, Ed Silvoso, God bless him, he's invented something new. No, no, no. no what he's done is he's looked at the book of Acts and said, okay, what are the high watermarks here? What are the best practices that were utilized by the original apostles, and how did we watch the church then grow Mm -hmm. and say those principles, if it's the same God today, yesterday, and forever, and his same word effective today and forever, then what were the principles put into practice then that were so wildly successful that we can replicate in our own lives today, not to go build the church small C or an institution, but to go out and make Disciples. Mm-hmm. This conference, as we mentioned, is taking place October the 13th through the 16th at Cathedral of Faith in San Jose. Information on the web at transformourworld.org. That's transformourworld.org. We're so close out of time here, Ed, but give me a minute. Give me a snapshot. Who's the conference for? Who should be there? Okay, this is for pastors so that they can see how cities are being pastored by other pastors if for business people so that or people in the marketplace they can be entry level that's okay so that they will love mondays as much as they love sundays mm-hmm. it's for intercessors greg you know people that say do my prayers make a difference you know and it's also for youth and family actually friday the 16th my wife ruth ruth palau and i and our four daughters and their husband and our 12 grandkids are doing a family seminar, Transformation on the Family. So it's for everybody. And if people cannot afford time-wise to come four days, on Saturday, October 17, 400 of us will be on a prayer cruise in the San Francisco Bay Area, praying for South Salito, for Oakland, for uh, San Francisco, for Redwood City. So this is for everybody. But I'll tell you one thing. When this conference is over, people will say, I not only heard something, I received something. And let me underscore something that you had mentioned to me off the air without going into too much detail here. And that is this is not simply a workshop about some concepts that we hope might work. In fact, Ed will share... During the course of this conference, again, the dates are October the 13th through the 16th. It's being hosted by our friends down at the Kenny Foreman's Church at the Cathedral of Faith in San Jose. He will share real-life examples of transformation that's taking place, not in just in locations like Ciudad Juarez in, in Mexico, but right here. Some people say, in the Bay Area? Yeah. No, they can't be here in the Bay Area. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's, this is godless territory here. No, right here in the Bay Area where this kind of transformation is taking place. If you are interested in building his church, in making disciples, in really understanding that evangelism is not what you do, but who you are, 
that the church is not a place that you go to or what you do singularly on Sundays, but what you're, who you are, then this is a conference for you. Again, the dates are October the 13th through the 16th at Cathedral of Faith in San Jose. Complete details available on the web at transformourworld.org. That's transformourworld.org. Ed, we're out of time. Will you come back? I will, Ed. We've not even looked at the top of the mountain, let let alone nicked the very peak off by a long shot. When you come back, I also want to talk about your Adopt-A-Cop program. Good, please. The timing of this, well, it's God's timing. Ed Silvoso with us tonight. Founder and President of Harvest Evangelism, the International Transformation Network, the conference Transform Our World. Again, the dates, October 13th through the 16th at Cathedral of Faith in San Jose. Details on the web at transformourworld.org. A timeout, back with more as Lifeline continues. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.